Mark Edge for Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I'm talking to a guy who, who I've known for years. Uh, and he's, his name is Mike Cobb, and his organization is ECI Development. Is that right, Mike? Got it. You got it, Mark. That's right. So tell me what ECI does, uh, because I know, but my listeners don't. We deliver inspired lifestyles for adventurous souls, and we do that throughout Latin America, now Europe. We just picked up a villa in the Azores, Portugal, last week, so we're brand new in Europe, which is very exciting. But what our real core business has been building resort communities for North Americans who want to live south of the border. And and this idea of adventurous soul and an inspired lifestyle, you know, intentional communities has been... I don't know. The, the word's kind of been maybe sidelined a little bit. But, but what we really do is build communities of people who are like-minded, many freedom lovers. We, you know, you've seen us here in Anarchapulco and other events for years and decades. Right? We've been in business 26 years. And so we've really been able to build communities of similar-minded folks, freedom-oriented communities in Latin America. And it's, it's wonderful. I, I think one of the things that people are going to think is, uh, what's it like for me to go to a place where I don't speak the same language they do? Well, good, good question. You know, the, there are a couple countries in, in the Caribbean and, and Central America that are English-speaking, which are easy. I always say that Belize is actually the easiest first step for many people going south of the border because English is the official language. All the contracts are legal in English. It's common law, so it's very familiar. Some of the Caribbean islands as well. But when you move into Mexico and the, and the Latin part of Latin America, now you're into Spanish, you're into legal documents in Spanish, you're into civil law, which is a little bit unfamiliar. So... It can be it can be intimidating, but when I moved to Nicaragua, I moved to Nicaragua with my wife and my two-year-old daughter in, in 2002, I spoke no Spanish, none, zero. And so for me, I, I understood that it's what I had to do. It was my job. I had to go do it. But what I found was it was a lot easier to get around than I thought it would be. I learned enough Spanish within a couple months that I could you know, get myself in trouble but not get out of trouble, of course. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I would never have that be an issue to prevent somebody from moving. I know you're working on Honduras. You've got a beautiful property there. You've got the, the nucleus of a real freedom-oriented community. And, and for people who are thinking, oh, Honduras, it's, it's, it's Spanish, I don't know. Like, forget that. Just, just take, take the plunge. People really, you can learn enough Spanish to get by, and most people speak English to some degree. So it's, it's really not a big issue. What about the danger aspect? When people, when Americans think about Honduras, um, uh, Nicaragua, they think about even Mexico to some extent. Um, Mexico is a gigantic place, and to think one thing about Mexico is uh, just shows the ignorance of any uh, anybody who's who's doing it. Uh, but uh, you know, they they think about these places, and they immediately there's fear. We've been told our whole lives that these are dangerous places, and there's evidence. There's news stories coming out. You know, there's people's heads lined up on uh, sidewalks, and a variety of you know horrifying things that are happening. Out out there now they don't show you what's happening um, in you know some of the bad places in the United States but yeah I mean what do, what do you how do you address that sure my simple easy answer is that crime is local right you could say that the United States let me make it even a little more local you could say Chicago is an extremely dangerous place and that's a true statement or it's not a true statement depending on what part of Chicago you're in and what activities you're engaged in as well. And so if you are out looking for drugs at 4 o'clock in the morning 
in some parts of Chicago, you know what, it's probably pretty dangerous and like you might get in trouble and you might get killed. Um, if you're in the drug trade in Chicago, there's a pretty good chance that you know, you're going to have a short life expectancy, right? And so same thing is true in Honduras. Honduras is not one thing. There are parts of Honduras that are very dangerous, very small neighborhoods. And what we know, uh, what we absolutely know empirically is that if you take out a few neighborhoods from the crime statistics, countries like Nicaragua, countries like Honduras and others, the crime rate drops to some just what I would call average level. The lightning can strike anywhere it does, right? So whatever, the lightning strike kind of numbers, right? So so same thing would be true in Chicago. If you took out a few zip codes in Chicago, the crime rate in Chicago would look very good, very low, right? So again, crime is local. The type of, of business we're in, I mean, drug business, whatever, right, would be one. And the type of activities we engage in as, as individuals. If we're out looking for drugs at four in the morning, we're probably not in the best neighborhoods, right? So, again, those are the kinds of things that impact crime. So if you're the kind of person who says, you know what, I just want to have a great life. I'm not going to be looking for drugs at four in the morning. I'm not going to get in the drug business. You know what? You're probably pretty safe in Honduras. You're pretty safe in Nicaragua. You're pretty safe almost anywhere. Yep, the United States, too. Um, United States, too. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. There was a terrible case in um, in Acapulco where, by the way, HBO's The Anarchist is probably Anarchists is going to be focusing on this particular issue is that there was a shooting in Acapulco and it was some people who went down to be part of Anarchapulco and this whole thing. And as I understand, there were drugs involved. It's really good advice. Wherever you are is is that if you're going to participate in mind-altering substances, period, that you do it, you, you find some cushion, some go-between in between you and whatever this, uh, this, this world is, and don't let it control you. But, um, you know, eh, humans being what they are, they want to make generalizations about places. Because it's easy. Look, if we just say, oh, Honduras, Honduras is dangerous, right? Then we don't have to really think about it at all. We can we can really, you know, move our brain somewhere else. But the point is, is if we're, if, look, freedom and personal responsibility are two sides of the same coin, right? If we want to be free, we have to take personal responsibility to do our own due diligence, to, to look at the numbers, to be empirical, to be rational. Because if we're not, then we're just crazy free, which, you know, who, who I don't know. I mean, some people are crazy free, of course, right? And that's okay, too, if they want to be. But, but, my personal mantra is that that personal responsibility is the element that gives us real, true freedom. And you know, and, and I've written this uh, this consumer resource guide. I got a copy of it here. I carry it around. This consumer resource guide helps us move from the land, the nanny state of the United States and Canada, where we've got regulatory bodies, we've got truth and you know, truth and lending, truth and advertising laws, right? We've got all these consumer advocacy groups, right? We are this nanny state, nurtured, pampered, protected society, right? It is seller beware. That is the U.S. and Canada. Seller beware. Lemon laws, right? I mean, okay. You move outside the U.S. and Canada, and all of a sudden you're moving into the world of buyer beware. Well, we don't know how to act. and I mean, if we just go on autopilot, which most of us do, we're in trouble because we do not know how to ask the kinds of questions. We don't know how to do the kinds of due diligence. We don't know how to think appropriately in a buyer beware uh, environment. And so we created the Consumer Resource Guide for folks so that all of a sudden people could go, oh, yeah, you know what, here's how I think we have 15 questions we should ask when we buy property overseas. But the whole gearing of this, this book that we've put together, and it's a book, is to help people begin to think differently. How do I take this idea of personal responsibility? I get it. Okay, freedom's wonderful. I don't want a nanny state. I want to live where I'm free to be a free actor, right? But 
conversely, or on the other side of that coin, how do I think differently in that environment? And, 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 and that's tough for many people, that, that adjustment, right? But once these, these 15 questions that we put together, once people go, oh, I see these 15 questions, that's just the beginning. It's, it's, how, it's, a, it's a way to frame our way of thinking. And it's, it's, it's important. It's very important. If we want to be free individuals, we must be personally responsible for the outcomes of our actions, but also the actions of others you know, to us uh, in, in circumstances. Yeah, when it comes down to it, you need a helping hand. You need somebody to uh, lead you into this area because there's a lot of advantages in living in Latin America. And, um, you know, Americans are inculcated with the idea that this is the only place to live. And it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. Those are the things we're told. Well, it's just none of those things are true, right? Um, it's just you're, you're not going to be as free in many cases inside the United States as you are going to be outside. And, um, you know, it's it's just a chauvinistic attitude. So, But you do need help. I mean, I, there, there's a lot of people who've had bad experiences going down to Latin America, and for very good reason, they're like, I'm never going to do it again. Well, that's because um, you tried something one time, and your mistake was costly, and you're not going to use the information that you've learned in order to solve the problem. And I get it, but you help people not make those first bad costly mistakes what we say is we help people get it right the first time how do they get a hold of you easy i send us an email info at ecidevelopment.com right in the subject line yeah free talk live mark edge whatever you want to write and then consumer guide right we want to i want to know that that folks were listening to this this podcast this radio program um again free talk in the subject line consumer guide the email is info at ecidevelopment.com. We will send you the download to the Consumer Resource Guide. It's a free resource. It will help you get it right the first time. Mark Edge here at Freedom Fest for Free Talk Live, doing interviews all day, and it has been, um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Today I've got with me a longtime listener of Free Talk Live, Stephen Villay. And uh, Stephen, you're here to talk about your new Club 75 Alliance. Tell me about it. Hi, yes. Uh, Club 75 refers to people whose income is 75000 or higher. And they are paying 90% of all federal income tax, but they're only 29% of... Uh, Taxpayers, so they don't have the votes to stop it or even control it. So I'm trying to encourage those people to move to New Hampshire and work with me to uh, negotiate peaceful secession. So I was just talking to Carla Garicki, um, or Garrick, I believe is what she's going with, <laughs> um, about uh, secession. And I can say that I support nullification for New Hampshire. Um, I think that uh, secession is a bit of, a, a bit of outside the realm of uh, possibility. Can you see how um, nullification might work to some extent um, on a state level to ease the tax burden on people who honestly just don't get, a good, don't get good representation? It could be, but I, I have more ambitious plans. I, my tagline is opting out of income tax. It's not just for millionaires. So look at what millionaires can do. They can move to countries like Monaco and the Bahamas. They don't have to nullify. They don't have to sneak around. They don't have to hide their transactions with crypto. They can travel the world and say, hey, everybody, I don't have to pay income tax. And 
Nobody can stop me. I want the same thing for non-millionaires. And it's going to take some work to do that. We're going to need to build up a, uh, an unusual population mix. People who, uh, an awful lot of Club 75ers, the people who don't benefit from income tax, and get them together and just tell the world we want out and we do and we're, the argument we're going to make is we the federal government lacks the consent of the governed in new hampshire yeah it's interesting how people who uh, don't pay income tax and there are a lot of them basically any if you're making less than seventy five thousand a year you are not paying much income tax if any at all now i understand you're paying uh, fica you're paying for social security you're paying for uh, medicare and a variety of other things and that may seem like income tax to you but it's not federal income tax by its name and uh you know, in many cases, those people want to have a vote. Why wouldn't you want to have a vote? Everybody wants to have a vote. If we went outside of the United States and we asked about all those people, would you like to vote on the, the you know the president and the politicians in the United States? Would you like a say? Their answer would be yes, absolutely. But if you're not paying for it, like the answer is, is who pays the bills here? Yes, exactly. So we want to basically say, hey, you want big government? The other 49 states are for you. Keep your big government, keep paying that income tax, but we want New Hampshire to be the place for people who prefer no income tax. So we want to be a separate country, kind of like a Monaco for the rest of us. You can think of it that way. Yeah, Monaco's an interesting case, and, um, you know, the Monagas, the people who are from there, and it's very difficult. I mean, you know, you have a kid outside of Monaco, even if you're Monagas, and, uh, you know, you better make sure you fill out your paperwork. But the the Monagas, uh, they live a life of complete pampered ease. They're um, cradle to grave, taken care of by the state. There's just very, very few of them. Now, they let anybody else come in there, and the taxes are, tax burden's quite low, but um, those people basically fund... Uh, uh, you know, gambling and a variety of other things fund the the lifestyle of the Monagas. Yes. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind about Monaco is if you want to move there, you pretty much have to be a millionaire. The actual rule is you need to deposit 500,000 euros in a Monaco bank. So if you can do that, you pretty much have to be a millionaire. So we want to make that same no income tax uh, freedom available to non-millionaires. The um, there's some old joke on the internet where they talk about ten people going to a bar and uh, you know having d- dinner and drinks and uh, the bar tab coming back and uh, they split up the bar tab the way that they split up U- United States federal income and basically um, one guy pays almost the entire bar tab. So if you're in the top 10% of earners, and I presume that's about where uh, 75,000 people, uh, you know, people who make $75,000 a year are, if you're um, in the top 10%, you're paying for 90% of the uh, federal income tax, which is a large portion of the federal budget. Right. Yeah, actually, it works out to 29%, but you're right. It is 90% of federal income tax. Uh, the, one of our characters in the in the video that we have is uh, a, a woman named Alice. She's an investor, and she's making uh, five and a half million or so a year. So she's in the top 0.03 percent of taxpayers, but sh- but that group is paying 13 percent of all federal income tax. So gives you an idea of how lopsided things are. Yeah, it's very very lopsided um, when it happens. So where can people find out more? Uh, Club75Alliance.com. 
Yeah, I think it's exciting, and I hope you can get uh, these these people together. There should be a tax union um, for these kind of people, and I think it's just, you know, I, I have a family, right? Um, and in my family, the way we used to run things is, is you know, uh, we've got deci- we got two adults that make decisions. We talk to the kid about what it is he'd like to see and what he'd like to do. But I, I gotta say, his uh, his decision making was disproportionately, um, you know, decided around Legos and candy. Um, you know, like these aren't good things to be making decisions on. Would you like to brush your teeth now, or would you like some candy? Well, you know, these are bad decisions. And so when you go ask people who, you know. Uh, only benefit from a government program and never have to pay for it what they think about that government program they may they may think it's inefficient they may be upset about uh, the service but they certainly don't want to do away with it because they like the free money exactly yes so uh, we want basically we want they sh- the rest of the, f- the 49 states should go doing that keep doing that thing and we want New Hampshire to be the place for <laughs> people who don't want income tax yeah, so um, you know, ultimately, with uh, when you when you have irres- when you have irresponsibility, you're going to have people acting in an irresponsible fashion. And what we've been taught, we know the government's inefficient. We know that most of the taxes that are paid never trickle down to the individuals that they're supposed to trickle down to. Oh, the poor, the the old, the children. You know, like there's these huge bureaucracies. The money's wasted, disappears. Joe Biden sends it to Ukraine. Whatever the situation might be, um, it it doesn't make it. And uh, but if you were to ask somebody who uh, has been inculcated with the, this system for you know a very long time, would you like one-tenth of the money that we steal from rich people? Remember, rich people are bad. You know, yeah, sure, they make our, our society run, but they're bad. Yeah, so a big part of the message that I'm trying to get across is rich people are not bad. I mean, we, we have this, uh, uh, one of the characters, this Alice that I was talking about, we're trying to show that she's not a bad, evil person for wanting to save money. In fact, she's very generous, and we, we, so we're showing that even a very generous person has a reason to want to, to opt out of income tax. So. And so you can find more out about Alice, too, at club75alliance.com? Yes, exactly. There's a right now it's under construction, but you can see a video. It's about 45 minutes long that explains pretty much everything I've been discussing. Right, so it's uh, club75alliance.com. Steve Valet, I really appreciate your time here. club75alliance.com. Do you feel like your country no longer holds your values? Have you dreamt of a place where liberty-minded people can come together and leave government overreach behind? There are many people just like you that are discovering FreePrivateCities.com. They start at FreePrivateCities.com and connect via the social media links shown there. All skills will be needed when the first of the Free Private Cities open. It's sooner than you think. Stop arguing and build FreePrivateCities.com. FreePrivateCities.com. Mark Edge for Free Talk Live coming to you from Freedom Fest. And I'm doing a bunch of recorded interviews here. I grabbed Mindy Geyer 
from the Intrust Group because I think that this is something that's important for all Americans to understand. Um, we've all got to save for retirement. The government, uh, Social Security, is not going to save you. You're going to be eating Alpo and living in the, the hood if you trust the government uh, to handle your retirement. So IRAs are important. And what the Intrust Group does is give you the ability to invest in just about anything. Mindy, tell me about it. Yes, thank you, Mark, for having me here today. Um, so the interest group are self-directed IRA record keepers and custodians. And with that, that essentially gives you the ability to invest in all sorts of alternatives, things like real estate or startup companies, any sort of private equity, private debt, cryptocurrencies, precious metals. The spectrum of what you can invest in is actually very broad. The key is that it has to be for investment purposes. And by having an alternative um, retirement account, this allows you to further diversify your retirement portfolio, which a lot of individuals think that they're stuck in the stock market of stocks, bonds, mutual funds. So this world of alternatives does exist. The key is having your retirement account with a custodian that is willing to hold those types of assets. So your standard custodians like TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, they might say they have a self-directed account, but you're still limited to stocks, bonds, mutual funds. The key is having your account with a custodian who holds the alternatives. So that's how you're able to actually invest in the alternative class. So... I mean, obviously, it makes sense to have a certain amount of your portfolio um, in, you know, say stocks, bonds, uh, you know, maybe maybe some real estate, some REITs, uh, you know, who knows what they all are. And we're not trying to give advice here today on what you should do. But, um, you know, there's there's probably should be some riskier, uh, you know, investments and some some ones that have far less risk. I guess what my question is, is that, do you just handle the high risk stuff or is it that, you know, I have two IRAs, one with Schwab, you mentioned, and one with you, or do I have it with you and then you can help me to invest in the stocks and the bonds and that kind of thing? Yep, that's a really great question. So in trust, we are strictly the record keeper and custodian. So we don't provide any sort of investment advice, tax advice, or legal advice. Um, now, you asked the question about do we only hold riskier assets or less risky assets? That's completely up to you. You are your own fiduciary of your retirement account. I will say self-directed IRAs are not for everyone because you are your own fiduciary. You should have a complete understanding of the types of assets that you're investing in, and you should understand the risks and returns that are associated with those types of assets. So again, you are your own fiduciary, so it's up to you to determine if you want to invest in riskier assets or less risky assets. I've been worked at more than one place, and I've got more than one IRA. Um, some of them are with organizations where I can go online and I can change, you know, what stocks and what uh, mutual funds I'm in at any given time. Other um, other IRAs are things that I barely ever remember, um, and then they just pop up every year with some, uh, you know, note letting me know uh, what's going on. How does yours work? So, I mean, is there a website where I can, you know, change the stocks that I'm invested in in that moment? or is it uh, more like I just don't get it yep, absolutely so this is a very different type of industry than your standard stocks bonds mutual funds 
So you are your own fiduciary. So you are directing us as the record keeper and custodian on the assets that you're investing in. So you're picking the asset. Let's say, for example, you see a piece of real estate and you decide to do a fix and flip and you want to do that inside of your IRA. You are going to direct us on the piece of property that you're purchasing. We, as the custodian and record keeper, will process that paperwork on your behalf. And then we are holding that piece of property inside of your IRA. We're doing the record keeping and reporting to the IRS so that it stays within that tax sheltered account. So do uh, this. This is a this is amazing, and this is a really great tool for um, you know somebody who wants to take control of their retirement and have money when they retire to be able to uh, benefit from. And you could do that. Use this for, uh, like you said, a fix and flip property. You could do this for cryptocurrency. You said you had a guy who did it on a racehorse. Yep. We actually, so the spectrum of what you can invest in is so broad. There's literally only three different things that you are not allowed to invest in. No life insurance, no collectibles, and no S corporations. So that leaves everything else as an option to invest in. Um, As you mentioned, we did have a gentleman that invested in a racehorse years ago inside of his IRA. We also have uh, clients that invest in, let's say, like a yacht. Again, for investment purposes, so you can't personally use the yacht. But if you're renting it out to individuals, all of that income is going right back into your IRA account. So if you rented the yacht, just out of curiosity, I mean, you you brought up yachts, I'm interested. Um, You simply can't go on your own yacht for a trip? I mean, what if I don't have anybody scheduled for this next weekend? It seems like um, I should, at the very least, be able to rent from myself. Yep, that's a great great comment. Um, And I have clients that ask me that all the time. Uh, The IRS says that as long as your IRA is the owner of that asset, it is completely hands-off. So every transaction must be at arm's length, no self-dealing, no sweat equity can be put into the asset. So it's essentially the IRS's asset, not yours, because it's in the name of your IRA. So as long as your IRA owns the asset, everything must be at arm's length. So um, I'd like you to explain the difference between a Roth IRA and your standard IRA and tell me if you guys offer those things and how that would work with uh, tax deferral before and after. Yep, absolutely. So we actually have seven different accounts that you can self-direct. There's a traditional IRA, Roth IRA, SEP IRA, Simple IRA, Solo 401k, ESA, and HSA. So all seven of those types of accounts can be self-directed. Now, with that being said, a traditional IRA at interest that's self-directed has the exact same characteristics as a traditional IRA at, let's say, Charles Schwab. What, what is different about it is it's the custodian that dictates what you can and can't invest in. So, for example, again, at Fidelity, let's say that you want to buy a house inside of your IRA. Today, you heard that Mark and I talk about that you can buy a house inside of your IRA. You go to Fidelity and you tell them, I heard I can buy a piece of property inside of my IRA. They're going to tell you, no, you can't. And that's true. You can't with them. You can inside of your IRA, but you have to have your money with a custodian who holds those assets. So... All of our accounts have the exact same characteristics as your standard type of account. It's just that we allow you to invest in those alternatives. So RMDs are the same. um, Contribution limits are the same. Everything's the same in regards to that type of account specifically. Right. Just because the um, the Fidelity account isn't limited by law to not having these things doesn't mean that the company that uh, Fidelity um, that we're talking about here, I'm not trying to diss on Fidelity. I don't care in particular where you've got your IRA, but <laughs> um, just because they aren't able to offer it 
and they can't offer it inside of their own rules doesn't mean that you can't do it. In the same way that if you go to a taxi cab driver and ask him to drive you from here to Hawaii, he can't do it. But um, if you go to a private pilot, he can. And they're both you know transportation companies, transportation uh, offers. So uh, how do people get a hold of you, Mindy Gayer? Um, so you can reach me via email. My email address is M-G-A-Y-E-R at theintrustgroup.com. Or more than happy to take phone calls as well. My telephone number is 615-900-4015. Or you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. I'm, I'm always available. So tell me about this guy who bought a racehorse uh, as part of his investment. Did it work out for him? I mean, I don't know. I actually didn't follow it. It was years ago before I was with the company. But I've just heard our CEO mention that story several times. It's a great story. Um, I'm curious. You say no collectibles, but I mean, it seems like if you invested in, say, Captain America number one, um, that one could presume that this uh, asset would increase in value. Um, Is that uh, why is that? What is that about? So that's a that's a great question. Um, there has been some debate on what is actually considered to be a collectible. Um, basically, if you cannot assign a, an, a value to the asset, a specific value, then it's considered to be a collectible. So, for example, like a rug collection or an alcohol collection or a stamp collection, coin collection. There is a caveat to the coin collection because precious metals are allowed as long as they are IRA-approved metals. Um, but those types of collectibles are not going to be allowed. Now, with that being said, for example, alcohol collection is not allowed. But if you wanted to invest in, let's say, a winery or a brewery, that would be allowed because you are now investing in a business, not an actual bottle of wine or a case of beer. So, again, it's uh, Mindy Gayer and The Entrust Group. What's the website again? TheEntrustGroup.com. Perfect. Thank you. Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. It's been it's been a really great time here and doing lots of interviews. Got with me uh, Stephen Candrella. Stephen, you're from Virtual Interactive Technologies, which is a video game company. Correct, Mark. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we're very thrilled to be here at Freedom Fest today. I've met a lot of new friends. I think it's been a super successful event. We are a video production and marketing company, publicly traded. We trade over the counter under the symbol VRVR. We have about a half a dozen legacy games that we produced over the last several years. Our uh, big news lately is that we signed up Dog the Bounty Hunter to do a series of video games with him, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. Yes, my understanding is you brought him here, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the video games you've got available to people to download and what it might be like. Our best game, Mark, uh, especially for your listeners who enjoy virtual reality games, which, of course, require a headset, and there are a number of those out there, Oculus, HTC, Samsung. Uh, We crafted a game that was a little counterintuitive to what you see out there. Uh, A lot of games on VR are... Uh, first-person shooter or, you know, pretty violent games, you know, energetic. Uh, You get an adrenaline rush. We went the other direction. We have a game called Catch and Release, and it's literally meant to be a chill, calming game that you play at the end of a long day. Uh, You are literally sitting in a little fishing boat. 
You've got your radio by your side. You've got your cooler full of beer. You've got your fishing rod. And you literally can fish for different different types of fish on this very nice lake and beautiful background. We've got a bear walking around on the hills outside the lake. And, and you can literally play it for five minutes or five hours, depending upon how much downtime you're looking for. What kind of fish are you uh, getting in this lake? I mean, you could be very specific, find a region, and then only have the fish that are in that particular region. Or you could just say, these are the most popular fish that are in uh, freshwater in the United States. And, or you could just really go crazy and say, you know what, any kind of fish, from whales down, down to minnows. So in this case, Mark, you know, being a, really VR right now is still in its infancy, so we went fairly simple with what you suggested as the latter. We took a, a group of fish, you know, big mouth bass, uh, trout, uh, striped bass, uh, stuff that you would find on a freshwater lake, and that's basically what you're fishing for. We are doing a, a follow-up series of games to it. Uh, the one that looks like it's the front runner, we're going to hopefully be able to do a catch-and-release Cabo where you'll literally be down, you know, on your boat outside of Cabo San Lucas and you're catching, you know, uh, tuna or swordfish or what, you know, what have you. Um, as you're, many of your uh, listeners probably know, there are some big tournaments that are held down there. You can win millions of dollars if you come in first. And uh, we're looking very seriously at producing that game. The production run on a game. Uh, it can take anywhere if you really got good coding teams and you're really quick and it's a simple game. We can get something out in 90 to 120 days. It, it's not unusual, though, for a really good game to take a year to code from start to finish. So no way that game, that Cabo game will be out this year, but uh, we think it, it could be a lot of fun also. Catch and Release is available on the Steam.com platform. That's where pretty much you go to get any of your virtual reality games. Uh, they're all played on a computer, so you download it to your computer as opposed to a mobile app that you're going to get on Google or on, on Apple that you download to your phone. So Catch and Release, uh, it's highly, highly rated on Steam. We're, we're proud of the game. I think it's great. Um, it's all the fun without any of the seasickness. And <laughs> then you have to touch the disgusting, slimy fish. No, God bless them. Um, it's, it's awesome. Tell me about the Dog the Bounty Hunter game. that you're, I know the dog was uh, here. I'm just very curious as to, to what's going on. So Dog is uh, based out of Castle Rock, Colorado. He's, of course, uh, originally from Hawaii. For those who, you know, millions of people who watched his show for 10 years, better over 10 years, and we became acquainted with Dog through a mutual friend about a year ago. We thought it would be a really fun, interesting game to replicate what he did in his show. So uh, we're going to do a series of games, and I'll get into that in a moment. But the first primary game, you literally will be Dog, you know, and you'll play this on your phone. It'll be a downloaded mobile app. You'll literally, you know, get in your car. You'll go to, you know, meet the bail bondsman who's got the problem with the guy that didn't show up for his hearing. And uh, Dog needs to go out and collect him. And, you know, then Dog gets the file and he's got to go talk to, we'll say, the ex-wife or the former business partner or what have you and try to track down the, the person that didn't want to show up for court. 
And uh, it's going to be done with a lot of humor. You know, it's going to be lighthearted. It'll be fun. There'll be a fair amount of action. For those who did watch the show, you know, we're going to do our best to stay true to what happened. You will see episodes in the game that, you know, we're going to pull from some of the things that did happen in the show. So for the, for the avid viewers, they'll, uh, they'll see a lot of familiar sights. And we think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're very excited about it. Dog has just been terrific to work with. I can't tell you what a great guy he is. Uh, you know, what you see is what you get. He, he's very compassionate. I was surprised at how well-read he is, but just a great guy to work with. And uh, I think the, the people who have watched him through all the years really know that. What kind of uh, delivery is there of this video game? I don't know how to say it. I'm, I'm not, this isn't my realm, but platform. So it's coming in through Steam. Is Dog coming through Steam? Dog will, that game will be downloaded through either the Google Play Store or the Apple environment. So you'll download it on your phone. Right now, we anticipate the game will be free to download and play. And, of course, we're probably going to show you an ad every couple minutes to, you know, that's how we make money. Or you'll have a chance, for instance, to buy a bigger taser or, you know, better tires for your car. Or there will be upgrades available in the game to help you enjoy the gameplay more. But that, that'll be how we monetize the game. It won't be a long game. You're not going to play this game for five hours. You'll play it for maybe 7 to 20 minutes per episode, but then you'll eventually catch who you need to catch, and then you'll be assigned another file to go get another uh, person that needs to be brought to justice. I uh, bet a dog wishes he could catch a bad guy in 7 to 20 minutes, um, <laughs> but that's what video games are like, and it sounds like it's going to be uh, a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I, I'd love to be involved in it. I'd like to be one of the bad guys he catches. That'd be so awesome. You know, Mark, your wish uh, is our command. We'll uh, definitely build you in. Uh, do you have any idea what we're chasing you for? It's got to be some financial crime, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, some, some uh, freedom of speech violation, something, something. It'll be fun. Well, maybe we'll make it a freedom of speech violation. That, <laughs> that seems to be a popular area these days. So, uh, yeah, I think we could get handcuffs on you before the game is over. So it sounds awesome. I love it. Um, so it, it is, it, you guys are here by the sounds of it, trying to you know pump your your stock. I mean, people get people more aware of what's going on with uh, virtual interactive technologies and the games that you bring into market. Nobody else here is doing the same thing. It's always good to be the one guy in the room doing this thing. Tell me more about that. You know, the the word pump and stock, we probably could avoid that, but uh, that's okay. Um, so uh, we. Uh, we're actually very uh, pleased with how our stock has traded during this, shall we say, rough market period. You know, we trade right around the two and a half dollar price. Uh, it's traded as low as a buck and a half, as as high as three and a half. You know, our stock slowly been going up over the last ninety days. Uh, we're very pleased with how that has turned out, and we are. We're out telling the company story. We think we're an in, an interesting investment. Right now, if you want to buy into a into a, a gaming company, there are literally a half dozen companies, all of whom are household names, 
EA Electronic Arts, you know, Activision, Blizzard, but there are not a lot of small company pure plays, and we're one of a, maybe a handful. The nice thing is because we don't, these are not high budget games that we're producing. For instance, the budget on the dog game, marketing all in, we're probably going to invest a half a million in the first one. You don't need a lot of gameplay to get that money back and make a profit. So, you know, we're highly leveraged towards being profitable. And if we get lucky and we get a home run, uh, I think that would be reflected in the stock price. So that's what we work for every day. And, and we are very pleased with how things are going. Thank you, Stephen. And it's a virtual interactive technologies and what was the stock uh, symbol was it VRVR it is mark VRVR we're actually very proud of that symbol you know obviously stands for virtual reality and you know I know a lot of folks aren't familiar with how companies get assigned symbols but we felt we got pretty lucky with that one so again thank you thank you Stephen Free Talk Live's video archives have been on Library for years. Library is an uncensorable, decentralized, blockchain-based media sharing protocol, and we're big fans of it here on Free Talk Live. In 2020, Library launched Odyssey, a video sharing website to compete with YouTube, and it's really taking off. Now with over 1 million channels, many of whom are disaffected YouTube creators. During YouTube's crackdown for not towing the government line on COVID, the Free Talk Live YouTube channel started receiving strikes and could be completely taken down at any moment. Thankfully, Odyssey started offering live streaming, so we're now streaming live every night and posting our video archives permanently to Odyssey. You can watch live or anytime on our Odyssey channel by visiting video.freetalklive.com. If you want to go all in, download the desktop app at lbry.com, and then every video archive you watch, you'll help seed and keep it online forever. At minimum, we ask you visit video.freetalklive.com and follow us on Odyssey today. Video.freetalklive.com. Free Talk Live. Mark Edge, Free Talk Live, coming to you from Freedom Fest. Managed to grab Chris Roofer from the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. I like the philosophy you have. It seems to me that uh, that you're, you're trying to spread something here that's going to really catch fire in people's hearts. Well, I hope so. Bottom line is I, we call ourselves a libertarian group as a party of principle. But I think that uh, the features that are identified today is uh, the, quote, principles of... Um, of libertarianism are basically features of libertarianism. So I've identified uh, what I think to be more fundamental than that. So a fundamental principle of how, of how humans should relate. I'd like to hear those principles. I like the non-aggression principle as an idea, but I feel it's a foundation, not a place to... It's not complete. I, I look at it, it principles in two forms. So one is principles which you and I would, would use and everybody uses in their lives. We make decisions on what those are going to be. And it could be I'm going to eat breakfast every morning. That's going to be part of my health program. It could be that I'm going to drive white cars because they're the safest. They're because I, I'm going to return phone calls and, and my, my mail. I'm going to be responsible on those lines. Those are principles which you personally identify that you're going to use. They're foundational statements which you use to live our lives. And they're great. But there's another term or, or, or concept on how you can use the term principle in the form of uh, uh, like gravity. So you've got natural uh, world out there and there's things there that we can't change so versus principles that we can identify and state that these are ours they are changeable but you can identify a principle in nature in the person obviously in the principle of, I'm sorry uh, uh, human nature 
like gravity or the way chemicals react versus temperature, etc. We can't change those. We can't pass a law in the city council to say, well, this weekend we're going to have a fair and so there should be no rain. Right. That's a natural law, basically, or something to that effect. It's a, it's, it's a natural order. Yeah, it's, an, it's a natural law. So I've, I've uh, looked at a few things, the three basic things about human nature, and uh, put, pieced those together to what I consider a principle, which is pretty recognizable. But the ramifications of it, I think, are, uh, are more uh, radical, but uh, interesting. So what are those principles, and what are the ramification, the radical ramifications? I'm curious. The, uh, well, number one, it starts with uh, uh, three what I call axioms. So the first one is, I believe people, their fundamental mission in life is to be happy. Now call it fulfillment call it well-being, live a life of well-being. But it's principally, I just say, happiness uh, as, as a term. It's not a giddy kind of thing, but a lifelong feeling of satisfaction. That's what people want. I 100% agree. Um, the, the focus of Free Talk Live for 20 years has been uh, liberty, but I'm coming to the conclusion that you must pursue happiness at the same time. We're only here for a short period of time, and if you're not happy, then, then what? Well, it's all about happiness. What, what are we here for? What are we, what are we doing? Why, why do we have uh, bacon and versus uh, toast at, at breakfast? Or why do we have cereal versus eggs? We do every single, single thing in our lives, what glasses we choose, what clothes we wear, to bring us a little bit more happiness. At least our drive is to do that. Always doesn't end up that way. But our drive is to be happy. And I think it's universal among human beings and even sentient uh, animals and whatnot. So the next axiom to drive a principle, now you get into social philosophy, basically what, what principles can we use, what, what characteristics of humanity can we, can we identify that affect each other, that will affect our happiness. So two things. So you've got uh, what can one person do vis-a-vis another person. So one thing you can do to another person is physically harm them. I mean, you physically touch them, right, in a way that you intend to harm them. So then I'll ask, well, does that increase your happiness or does it decrease happiness? Most people, sometimes after a while, but they'll recognize that, yeah, that decreases my happiness, no question. And then the question is, all every time? And you have to resolve, basically, most virtually everybody resolves it, yes, every time. Can you imagine a, a moment where somebody aggressed against you and they physically harmed you where you'd be happier? And people will say no. So I think that's a, that's a universal action and reaction. The action is you physically harm someone, they are less happy. That's, so that's axiom two. So no. Also, you're less happy when you harm somebody because the, you know, the consequences in modern society of using uh, violence adult on adult is not going to be real good for you as the uh, aggressor. Now, I, I think that's true. People don't really want to harm other people, and they feel good when they help other people. But the real point is the physical action of harming and what the reaction is relative to what humans want, which is happiness. The, so the third axiom is, is along the same lines but relative to property. So peop, you know, your property is stolen. Well, are you happier or less happy? People are less happy when, when their property is stolen. So then you question, well, how, can you give me a, 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 an example of when you are happier when somebody's stolen? Well, then you can get, all right, well, my daughter says, well, there's this junk in the garage that I really didn't want, but they stole it, so I was happier. Well, come on, that really wasn't your property to speak of in a sense, but I think people know what I mean. So that's the third axiom. I think it'd be rare that one is uh, robbed, burglarized, stolen from, or whatever the terminology is, and then they're going to be happy. But I get it. There are some things in my life that probably should just go. <laughs> yes. But, it, yeah, I mean, the definition of property, we can argue all over the place to some degree. But uh, stuff you really don't want is probably not what you really consider your property. But anyway, so you have these three, three uh, characteristics or three things we can observe in, in humanity. And they're really ingrained in us 
biologically if you want to get that deep to it. So we want to be happy from a social relationship, other people. We decrease their happiness if we, if we physically harm them. We decrease their happiness if we steal their property. The point is, it's a principle, and it's a principle of human nature, and you can't change it. So this, this principle works every single time. It's like gravity. You can't change it. So once you can get to understand what I mean by principle, in a sense that it, when you can identify something that's hardcore, it's hardwired in nature, you can't change it. Yeah, I think that's true. You cannot change that. So um, what is the uh, foundation for harmony and prosperity doing to bring this uh, revelation of yours uh, you know, forward? I think, it, I think you're accurate. Libertarians have been doing a lot in the sphere of politics and that this, will, uh, this is something one can implement in your life. You can be happier now. Yeah, I think it pertains to your personal life uh, in one way. But the radical part about it and what, what it shows... I believe that as a principle that's really founded in, in nature is that when you look then at, at, and that's a social philosophy, it's how we should work together. And that's how we do work together. Everybody has those principles in their personal life or they wouldn't have friends if you go around harming other people. So we have to live by those principles. The difference now is you get to this concept of government and, and, and coercion and ask yourself what law the government passes does not backed up with a gun or the threat of it. Well, it's hard to think of any. So when you recognize that the concept of government is the use of force to get things from other people or to get people to do things we want them to do, when you can equate that carefully, and one can clearly, well then, well, how much government do we want? You want zero, back to the zero, you want zero coercion in your life. So it it just resolves that uh, we shouldn't be having government, we should be relying on ourselves. So the philosophy of human respect, which the foundation promotes... So what's the foundation doing to uh, advance prosperity in that way? Like, are, are you working? I, I, I just don't know. What are you working with? Uh, how, how are you making it happen? You know, it's probably me constraining things. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I, I, I do the writing. It's advancing things for whatever we can. So we're coming up with things. We're young. So it's, uh, we got a crew of great folks that are working on these things at a booth here at Freedom Fest. So it's a start. So it's advancing philosophy. So how do you communicate? So it's communicating through different ways that we can think we can communicate. So whether that's through social media or visits and, and visits with people one-on-one, it's whatever we can do to communicate the philosophy as other people communicate the philosophy. So the, I remember, it's probably been five years now, um, kind of swept through my little corner of the libertarian universe was something called nonviolent communication. And I think that this is kind of something similar in so much as it's a education organization to teach people how to communicate with other people, how to interact with other people. And it was really exciting there for a little while. I, I felt like not, nonviolent communication was made by somebody who perhaps didn't entirely share my uh, f- belief system, but you do. <laughs> I mean, there's ramifications to this that are, that are uh, more than just there really shouldn't be others' government. But we, so it's a governance system that you have a, a, the opportunity to do what you want in life but you're constrained by these morals of not using physical force and stealing property. So it's a governance system. I mean, how do birds and squirrels live out there without government? They seem to do quite well. It's just amazing, and it's just silly. I uh, remember just growing up, and a lot of boys in my neighborhood, I had zero girls. But, you know, mom gets get out of the house, get out of the house, and we find each other, kids, and we, we play basketball or, or ride around together and play games and whatnot totally organized by 10-year-olds. So we really don't need much supervision here in our lives, and people live their lives very well on their own if they take personal responsibility for them, and I think that would advance our society quite well. 
Chris Roofer, Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. How can people find out more? We got a website, and it's harmonyprosperity.org. Um, but there's not a lot on there. We, we're figuring out how to do things. We also, with us, we, we co-work with the Advocates for Self-Government. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mark Edge here at Freedom Fest for Free Talk Live. I've got Carrie Baldwin with me from the Libertarian Christian Institute. Carrie, I've seen um, the Libertarian Christian Institute here at the event. Looks like you guys have uh, you know a lot of people at your booth. And I'm curious, what are you doing? So we are here because we are Christians who are Libertarian. And uh, we believe that Libertarianism is the best uh, expression of Christian political thought. And we're here to make that that case both to Christians and non-Christians alike. There's um, often a question of whether Christianity and libertarianism is even compatible. We believe it absolutely is, and we're here to share that with people. I've had this experience being in the movement for 20 years. I can say that there are plenty of Christians that I've met, and they're great Christians, and they're working hard to do that sort of thing. At the same time, there's a no-gods, no-king kind of uh, idea that uh, seems to permeate Christi- uh, excuse me, uh, libertarianism. And to me, I just it, it, they're, they're separate things. I mean, obviously, it, it seems clear to me that uh, a creator created us to wish to have freedom and that one can only rule through you know, just means. I'm curious where where you guys stand and what uh, your foundational literature is like. Yeah, well, we hold to the principle of self-ownership. Um, when we talk about that in terms of our Christian faith, we call it a, a self-stewardship, that God gave us that stewardship over our own bodies. That's not something that anybody else has any control over. So in relation to others, we own ourselves. In relation to God, we are stewards of ourselves. Um, and this is all basic, founded in Scripture. You know, even basic laws like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, these are all aligned with the non-aggression principle and we think uh, is compatible with libertarian philosophy. So in his uh, book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, Tolstoy seemed to, what he was, it seemed to be what he was trying to say is, is how can this man rule me when... God is my sovereign when, you know, Jesus is my sovereign or whatever, you know, however he chooses his uh, rulership, how can this other person rule me? And that was, that seemed to be fundamental to what he was looking for. He pointed out the evidence that uh, God was in fact his sovereign and that, um, you know, the rest of this person didn't care. And then, you know, that uh, therefore this person must have been sent by the devil. And it was a whole fascinating, uh, you know, diatribe. It wasn't really stuck together nearly as well as uh, War and Peace was, but, uh, you know, it, it was, it, I liked it. One of the uh, fundamental chapters in the book of Romans is Romans 13 that talks about our uh, relationship to civil governance. This is probably one of the most twisted um, passages uh, by Christians, especially American evangelicals, who use it to sort of baptize whatever the state is doing. It's convenient to do that when, they're, when their guy is in power. We hold that Romans 13 is actually a prescriptive view. In other words, it's, it's prescribing what good civil governance looks like. It's not describing what the state is doing. And so we're able to draw distinctions between what good civil governance is and, and what bad civil governance is. So we would hold that, that God ordains good civil governance, and you know that's to punish those who violate rights, but that it doesn't mean that 
whatever the state says, whatever the state claims authority over, that they have a legitimate authority to claim that. Romans is one of those things that people trot out over this. I'm not a big fan of Paul, and if uh, you want to go into Haya Maccabee's books on this, I'm fine. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, Jesus clearly said, uh, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And the question I have regarding this, right, is, is so Benjamin Franklin sits on a $100 bill, and Benjamin Franklin's dead. He doesn't own that $100 bill that I owned. Right? He doesn't, you've got a $100 bill. I presume you've touched one at least. And it wasn't Benjamin Franklin's. It was yours, presumably, for the whomever's it was at the time that you had it in your hands. And, you know, it's not like Jesus spent, it didn't spend a certain amount of time saying kind of cryptic sayings. And so I do think you should render under Caesar, whomever Caesar might be in this circumstance, what is Caesar's? And you should render under the uh, under the liars and thieves in Washington, D.C. What's theirs? Absolutely give it to them, whatever it is that's theirs. But it isn't my money that I earned. Well, here's the thing. So that whole phrase is render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's and to God what is what is God's and to owe no one anything. So really what this means is you owe the state nothing. Don't don't participate in the state and you owe them nothing in the eyes of God. As far as, you know, rendering unto God what is God's, well that's that's everything. That's my life. And he sets us free. Christian liberty, freedom of conscience, those are all concepts that are at the heart of Christian doctrine, and those do not belong to the state. I imagine you get a certain amount of pushback. It seems like in the liberty movement, um, you know, atheists' favorite thing to do is to chit-chat about uh, somebody else's religion. You know, to me, I find it boring, uh, you know, to you know to, to go into the very, very minutia, but I know that that's their favorite thing. You try to make, uh, you know, alliances with them in so much as, hey, we're both against, you know, bad governance here, or do you try, uh, you know, you're trying to make a home for people who, you know, believe in religion. I'm just kind of curious, how do you find yourself in this, uh, this kind of... Uh, you know, libertarians love to debate. I think we are free to debate religion, of course. Um, but I like Frederick Douglass's view that we'll work with anybody who who wants to be free. And we want atheists to be free as much as we want Christians and Muslims and any other religion to be free. Religious freedom was founded in the Protestant Reformation. And uh, it's, it's at the very heart of, of Christianity. We want that freedom for atheists just as much as anybody else, just as much as for ourselves, because it doesn't make sense to coerce anybody into a religious belief. That, that has proven in history to be a really bad idea. So we will work with atheists toward, towards a free society, and uh, we hope uh, as we go along that maybe we can uh, help change their, their hearts towards Christ as well. When it comes to, uh, you know, I mean, obviously you have the organization. What is it that you're doing um, as far as reaching out to? What, what, what's your, what are you doing as an organization? We have articles on our website, libertarianchristians.com. We've got uh, three podcasts, uh, the Libertarian Christian podcast, uh, the Faith Seeking Freedom pod- podcast, and then the Libertarian Christian Roundtable, which is more of a you know current events kind of commentary. We have our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And that's a basically 101 tough qu- questions that we get asked as Christian libertarians with short form, you know, less than 200 word answers addressing everything from what does the Bible say about civil governance uh, to taxation, environmentalism, abortion, prostitution, the the whole gamut. So um, those are the things that we're doing right now. Uh, We've got some projects in the future. um, And yeah, that's it. 
So there's no shortage of libertarian uh, Christian organization. The Axton Institute comes to my mind, these sorts of things. Is it, uh, um, it, it draws to mind the Monty Python skit where it's like, uh, yeah, we hate the Roman government, but boy, what we really hate is the, uh, the Israeli uh, Freedom Defense Fund because we're the defund defend freedom or whatever it is, uh, the old joke. It was, it's a great bit, by the way. Um, yeah, so, you know, we, uh, we hold to a non-interventionist foreign policy. We don't believe in, in giving foreign aid to anybody, Israel included. Um, that's not an issue. We do see uh, the Acton Institute as, as an ally with, you know, similar to our own mission. Uh, um, so, yeah. Very good. Um, tell people how they can get a hold of you. Yes, absolutely. All of our uh, all of our stuff can be found at libertarianchristians.com and you can find our podcast uh, on any podcatcher. It's Libertarian Christian Podcast. Join liberty-minded voluntarists, anarchists, and libertarians from June 15th through the 18th for the 7th annual Fork Fest at Rogers Campground in the beautiful White Mountains of New Hampshire. ForkFest is a fork of the Porcupine Freedom Festival, which sold out in 2022. For 2023, we're going back to where it all started, the weekend before ForkFest. ForkFest is decentralized, which means that there's no ticket cost and no one is in charge. All you have to do to join the fun is reserve your camping site, RV site, or motel room with Rogers Campground for June 15th through the 18th. You can find out more at the unofficial website ForkFest.Party. You can also connect with other attendees on the ForkFest Telegram and Matrix chat rooms, as well as the ForkFest Forum. You can find links to those at ForkFest.Party. We hope to see you there June 15th through the 18th. ForkFest.Party. Mark Edge here at Freedom Fest. I have with me Luke Livingston from Innovation Race, which is a movie that's here at the Anthem Film Festival. And um, yeah, so I, I know you guys have been involved with the film festival for some time. Tell me about uh, your involvement first. We've been producing conservative and libertarian themed films for, uh, I've been doing it since the beginning of the Tea Party movement. But here at Anthem, our first entry was Invalidated, which is a prequel to Innovation Race, which is the film we're screening here now. Invalidated was the story of an inventor who had had his property infringed upon by another company and had his IP stolen despite the fact he had a patent. And, and, and his patent didn't provide him any protection. Remember, you know those water balloons, when you go to Walmart, they, they have like 50 water balloons you put in the end of a hose, you fill them up. Those things look so exciting to me. I know that um, my son had some when he was little for a brief period of time, but yeah, I mean, they're so neat. Yeah, yeah, it's called Bunch of Balloons. Well, he invented this thing and then put it on Kickstarter, and, and it made a million dollars in like two days. And someone ordered one from Kickstarter, painted it a different color, and started selling it and putting it on, on TV. So that, and even though it was, his idea was patented. So it's his personal journey to uh, save his invention. And it takes him to Washington, D.C., where he learns that the laws had been changed to weaken the rights of inventors so that big tech can poach content and, and, and use predatory infringement uh, of, of uh, ideas to get to market fast with their tech ideas. So that's what that film talked about. It's a heart-wrenching story. But during that film, we realized, wow, there's a national security implication 
to the weakening of our patent system. What does it mean if our intellectual property rights here in America are being corrupted and weakened by the big guys? You know, keeping the little guy, keeping the ladder down for the little guy, or keeping it up for the little guy so he can't climb up. What does that mean for us? So that's what this, that's what innovation race is about. We still talk about the patent system and problems there, but we talk, hey, what does that mean for America's security? America's future of being an innovative leader? You know, China's threatening our position as an innovative leader. How are they doing that? Well, they're, they're working on ways to help weaken our patent system, and big tech is letting them get away with it. Why are they letting us get away with it? If big tech has the control over the uh, you know, intellectual property and, and so that the, you know, the, the little guy doesn't have uh, control anymore, why are they doing it? Well, if you, by weakening our, our intellectual property system, all right, and, and, and China is at the same time seeing what worked for us for over 240 years. Reverse engineering things. I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're doing. They're the ones who build it. Right. Well, that's. It, let, let me just get to this. Okay. It's basically China is moving from infringement and stealing ideas and copying ideas to innovation and owning the ideas that they're manufacturing. They want to control and governance of intellectual property law in in America. All right. So what? So if we are allowing big tech to weaken our patent system and make it hard for the little guy to the point where people are just hiding their ideas as trade secrets rather than publishing them where we can build upon innovation, right? China's seeing that, going, "Whoa, they're weakening their patent system." Let's. But what worked? Let's take what worked, and they started doing that years ago, and they're b- building a strong IP system in China. So we're finding inventors moving from the U.S. and abandoning our patent system and going there to patent in China. So this is happening now? Yes. That is a fascinating stuff. Yeah. So, as a matter of fact, in the film we reveal that in 2019, China had more patents in the world than America for the first time. America was always number one. But, over, but since legislation was passed in 2010... To, to weaken our patent system, China's been able to take advantage of our weaker, weakening position to get more patents. And a lot of those patents are actually American patents that are, that are filed in China, American inventors. So there are American inventors that are going to China for whatever reason to use their patent system. Um, and, you know, somehow we're losing, we, the United States, um, the United States is losing its position as the, it is the, has been up to this point, uh, the global a clearinghouse for patents and intellectual property. Right, because our patent system is in our Constitution. It's in Article 1, Section 8. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's before that. The first time the word right, R-I-G-H-T, is mentioned in the Constitution is protecting the right of inventors. Okay? So, you know, it's important that we focus on this because it's what made America great and it's what provides the American dream. So how can people go see, uh, is it Innovation Race and, um, what, what was it? InnovationRaceMovie.com. It is uh, premiering here, or uh, uh, being shown here at the Anthem Film Festival uh, at 8 p.m. on July the uh, 13th. But um, I think you can go online and see it? Well, you'll be able to see the trailer at that website, InnovationRaceMovie.com. Um, we're just announcing the film here. You know, we're just like, we're just, right now it's like our official rollout. Uh, we have a big premiere in the fall. The film will be available in the fall, either online or in theaters. So uh, what about the, the prequel? What's that called, and where can people see that? The prequel is called Invalidated, 
and Invalidated is available on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. So let me ask you about that. You're the only person I know that has uh, managed to get a movie on Amazon Prime. I can't say I f- travel in the movie circles. Um, <laughs> so what was that like? What was it uh, like uh, you know, going through that morass of uh, bureaucracy and getting your movie um, you know, played there? Well, Amazon, but when, I, when we placed Invalidated, Amazon had, had not yet made it hard for independent filmmakers. But now they've made it a lot harder. And uh, so it's, you have to go through different... Uh, brokers, aggregators, people who have the Rolodex and know who to have access and are trusted sources. So just like distributors, you have to go to somebody who Amazon trusts to place a slate of properties on the on Amazon Prime Video. So, yeah. So, um, did you? Is it for? Is it uh, paid on Amazon or is it free on Amazon? How do you get paid? I guess is what my question is. Yeah, we get pennies per view. You know. But a distributor gets a cut, too. But basically, it's free. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. It's called Invalidated. It's really, it's only 50 minutes. It's a great story. And so you get a few pennies per view. Are you, I mean, what, what's your experience? Is, uh, are people, are millions of people um, watching it? Or is it, uh, you, you're making a whole bunch of movies and hoping that you get pennies on a whole bunch of views? How's that work? Yeah, I mean, Amazon cuts, Amazon cuts checks to the distributor on a regular basis. Distributor gives us a check. It does really well. It's got a very high rating. I've got a couple other movies on Amazon Prime, too, so... Yeah, it's uh, exciting stuff. And you've been a filmmaker for a very long time, is that right? Um, what, what are some of the other things that people could find of yours? Well, we started back in the Liberty Movement with Tea Party Movie. It's a documentary about the rise of the Tea Party Movement. It follows five activists off the couch into activism, arriving at the National Mall for the 9-12 March on Washington back in 2012. And uh, then we have uh, 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 Runaway Slave with C- Reverend C.L. Bryant. It's a story of black conservatives. We did that back during the Obama administration. Features Andrew Breitbart, uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Glenn Beck, um, uh, and, and dozens and dozens of other people. So, so Runaway Slave, what, what is that, um, what's that name suggest? Because, uh, I mean, obviously, being a black conservative is a well, difficult... Yeah. It's got, we got Thomas Sowell, Elveda King, Star Parker... Uh, Herman Cain. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of black conservatives in it. It's basically the story of black conservatives in, in 2012, which hasn't changed much since then. But it follows a journey along a new underground railroad. This pastor who's a former uh, NAACP chapter president named C.L. Bryant, who's pretty famous in conservative movie uh, circles. He's got his own blog and all. Um, C.L. goes on this journey to discover, you know, this new underground railroad of freedom away from the entitlement mindset of big government and how big government is enslaving the mind of a whole generation of people. And we talk about Roe versus, Roe versus Wade. We talk about heavy-duty issues, you know, as well that that uh, that affect the black community. So it's a great documentary, award-winning. It's got 400. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. It's got like 500 comments. They're all like four and a half stars. Is there um, one website that you could send people to for sort of a clearinghouse for all your work? Sure. Groundfloorvideo.com. Groundfloorvideo.com. We also have lots of uh, documentaries on YouTube. We've got one about the border, where we traveled along the border. And that's uh, featuring Nick Searcy. Actor Nick Searcy hosts that. We've got one on Obamacare, right? We have uh, one on socialism. Groundfloorvideo.com? That's correct. Groundfloorvideo.com. Thank you.
All right, another edition of the Edgington Post here at Freedom Fest. It's Mark Edge here for Free Talk Live, doing an interview with Doug Kirkpatrick from the Self-Management Collaborative. Doug, it it seems like you've been involved in uh, a real innovation in the area of management, human management inside of uh, work areas, and some company that I know I've heard of, but I can't tell you why, Morningstar. Yeah, uh, definitely involved with Morningstar. I was their financial controller. Uh, when Morningstar started its first uh, construction of tomato processing factory in 1990, 32 years ago. And uh, we're in construction working out of a little tiny farmhouse on a dusty canal bank in Northern California. And one day our uh, entrepreneur founder, Chris Rufer, came into the farmhouse and said, let's have a meeting of colleagues uh, and talk about governance, how we're going to organize this thing. So at the time, we had about 24 colleagues. Most of them were technicians. I was a financial controller. And we met in a little double-wide trailer out on the job site in the evening. And uh, Chris handed out a document called the Morningstar Team Principles. And uh, in the document, uh, he proposed organizing around two core principles. Number one, people shouldn't use force or coercion against uh, other people. And number two, people should keep the commitments they make to other people. This sounds remarkably like libertarianism in a nutshell. Well, it certainly does. And if you think about it, it's the principle of all law everywhere in the world. All laws against assault, battery, theft, burglary, uh, kidnapping, murder, and all the rest uh, undergird the principle of not using force. And contract law, civil law, would mean nothing if people didn't keep their commitments. So uh, absolutely the basis of uh, civilized work everywhere in the world. What I found is, is in many cases with employees and people that you do business with, is that um, obviously there's not a lot of, uh, of violence going on in the workplace. Although a workplace at one point in human history had a, lot, had a great deal. I mean, you know, employees were beaten and slaves were beaten and the, these sorts of things. But um, almost it seems like that has been done away with. But it seems like... As a result, or, you know, completely independently, employees, contractors, a variety of people, they don't do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, commitment making and commitment keeping is serious business. Uh, Commitments are promises. They're bold promises of intent. And to break a commitment is a big deal. And it's certainly not okay. Uh, In the morning start workplace, it's absolutely not okay because it's the core principle of how work gets done. Work is essentially... um, formed of commitments. Commitments are the atoms of work. They're the molecules of work. They're how things get done. And the flow of commitments back and forth is how actions get accomplished in the workplace. How does an employer or somebody who's uh, you know getting some work done in their house um, and any variety of people, how do you hold somebody to their commitments? What is the what are the techniques? What are the what's the verbiage that one uses? How do you do this? Because I, I imagine that's what the innovation is. Right. So commitments are structured. Uh, We look at uh, great thinkers like Fernando Flores. He was Chile's uh, youngest finance minister in the early 1970s when his presidente was overthrown in a bloody coup and he went to prison for several years, studied computers and studied language. So when he came out, he wrote a book called Understanding Computers and Cognition, which some consider the Bible of artificial intelligence, but he also studied commitment-making and commitment-keeping. He learned that commitments have structure. They begin with a a promise or an offer, 
uh, and they uh, result in a, an agreement, a negotiation for conditions of satisfaction. What is the definition of done? An ultimate agreement. Uh, the performer goes off and performs, delivers the result. The person to whom the promise was made gets to review the results and accept them. And at that point, the loop is closed uh, and you go on to the next commitment. So commitments are serious business. They have structure. They have a life cycle. And the way we hold people accountable is that we don't ask people why they didn't keep a commitment. We don't ask for excuses. We ask people why they didn't tell us they couldn't keep the commitment so it could be renegotiated. Right. So um, in a lot of cases, I think people aren't used to this kind of uh, interaction. You know, it's uh, uh, excuses are it seems fundamental to what we do in business and uh, excuses don't pay the bill they don't keep the lights on they're they're you know frankly i don't care why you didn't produce what it is that you pr- i don't hate you and i don't think you're a lesser human being what i want from you is to do what you said you're going to do or set me free so that i can go find somebody who can um and it, it seems like we avoid those kind of conversations dramatically because for whatever reason being wrong is um uh, maybe maybe we're evolved that being wrong is terrible it means we get kicked out of the tribe or, or something yeah and avoiding those conversations comes at a great great cost because these conversations should be held at the level of trust. Fred Kaufman uh, wrote a book, Conscious Business. And these conversations too often take place at the level of transaction. Why didn't you keep the commitment? Then you listen to a litany, a list of excuses, and then you decide which ones make sense, and nothing gets resolved. But if you ask the question, well, why didn't you tell me you couldn't keep this commitment? That suddenly freezes the conversation and elevates it to a level of trust. And if it happens more than once, then the conversation becomes, how can I trust you in this environment? Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating, and I, I I think that may be the innovation. Is is why didn't you tell me? Elevates the conversation to trust, and everybody wants to be trustworthy. And it's not even that hard to say, "Look, I'm not going to be able to commit meet my commitment." Um, you know, in a day of cell phones and texting and things like that, you can say, "Hey, look, that 11 o'clock meeting we had, traffic's bad. Uh, you know, I had to get a cup of coffee. Um, you know, the, uh, the the girlfriend hit me over the head with a frying pan. Whatever it is, I'll be there at um, noon 30 rather than 12 11 o'clock. At the very least, we've started a conversation about what's going on, and I don't have to sit." there waiting for you to show up. Absolutely. And these conversations for action, which is Fernando Flores's term, uh, can change the entire uh, workplace culture and environment, how work gets done by and between individuals in the workplace. Uh, it's a huge elevator of high performance and high integrity. Mm. So where does, um, I think this is for everybody, because everybody's an employer, everybody's an employee, ultimately. I mean, I don't, I'm not using the legal term employer and the legal term employee, but I'm, we're, relationships uh, have to do with transmitting value and, have, and setting expectations. And that's what we're uh, coming down with. So I'd say this is for everybody to understand, but... Um, fundamental, you know, let's let's just leave it to business owners. Where can business owners and uh, people find out more about this? Because I mean, I want to dig into what you've had to say, and I know that I'm not going to be able to do it in ten minutes. Well, a couple of places. Number one, they can go to my website, DougKirkpatrick.com, fill out the contact form, uh, or go to the SelfManagementCollective.org, and uh, they can take a survey and find out the current state of their own organization and the degree to which it's subject and open to change. 
So that's Doug Kirkpatrick, Self-Management Collaborative. Two websites. The first one, DougKirkpatrick.com, my personal website, which has a contact form, or they could go to selfmanagementcollective.org. So I'm seeing collaborative on your um, card card here. Um, Is it collective or collaborative? I'm sorry, collaborative.org. So selfmanagementcollaborative.org. I think this is uh, fascinating stuff, Doug. And I think that, um, I mean, have you, uh, what, what do you guys do when you, you know, find somebody that needs your help? Have a deep conversation about the needs, desires, and intent for change. And then we have a program w- that we can co-create with leaders to help them uh, put them into a, a networked mindset as opposed to a hierarchical bureaucratic mindset and help them figure out how to transition from one state to another and create a a dynamic networked organization that's much more conducive to solving the complex problems of today. Right. So what you basically do is you run a consulting organization that helps business owners move into modern management because I can tell you, nobody tells you this stuff in school. I mean, there's no, I mean, even in business school, this isn't what management is taught as, but this is what it is because you're dealing with human beings and um, this is the psychology of management and how to be successful. And I think you, I think you've cracked the code. Yeah, and business schools, quite frankly, for the most part, are invested in traditional management, figuring out how to help uh, uh, students learn how to climb the career ladder of a traditional management organization, uh, acquire greater uh, status and titles and uh, perks and power and all the rest, and rise and, and develop. But in a self-managed organization, it's much more of a networked mindset. It's a mindset that uh, breaks the, the parameters of traditional bureaucracy, which is really not capable of handling the complex problems of today. So do you find that there's uh, some employees that just aren't cut out for this kind of management? Well, some employees uh, may not gravitate toward a self-managed organization, primarily because there's no place to hide, because people are making commitments and they are accountable for the commitments and will be held accountable to those. Uh, however, uh, it, in a, it's a voluntary association, and so if two people in a self-managed organization decide to create a tiny hierarchy because one prefers to be told what to do, that's perfectly okay. It, it's because of the voluntariness of the association. It's DougKurtPatrick.com, SelfManagementCollaborative.org. I am coming to you live from Freedom Fest for Free Talk Live. It's me, Mark Edge, and I'm here with Reed Coverdale, the host of Naturalist Capitalist. Reed, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. So tell me, what is um, the podcast, uh, Naturalist Capitalist? What do you guys do over there? Yeah, so I've been doing it for about two years, and the premise of the podcast is that all of the biggest problems in our world are created by people claiming to try to rectify natural inconsistencies or natural wrongs that they don't like. And I don't think that's what their goal actually is, but it's what they always say they're going to do. So with the economy, they say they're trying to avoid recessions by pumping trillions of dollars with uh, quantitative easing. With wars overseas, they claim they're trying to promote democracy and freedom around the world. With COVID, they claimed they were trying to uh, contain the spread and trying to stop the disease from going nuclear and all over the place. And then obviously 
the reverse of all these things ends up being true. I Like I said, I think they have more nefarious goals, but that's always the premise that they have is that they're trying to fix these natural problems. My case is they can't fix the problems. They make them worse, and we actually need to embrace a little bit of Darwinianism and just accept that some people are going to fail, some people aren't going to be as good as others, and that natural hierarchy is actually a good thing. And I look at capitalism as embracing nature in the marketplace, and so that's why I chose the name naturalist capitalist. I'm not a nudist. A lot of people confuse it with naturist capitalist, but it's naturalist capitalist. Yeah, you, are, you do have pants on, and I appreciate that, i got to say. When I think about capitalism, I do think of it as sort of a natural state. It seems like people understand that they need to produce something in order to trade it with other people. I mean, we've had trade a long time. We, uh, it was really the Industrial Revolution that created sort of modern economics, um, I mean, obviously, there was you know something passing for economics prior to that um, with uh, Adam Smith and all those sorts of things. But it seems like since 1815 or thereabouts, that's when it sort of all began. I tend to agree with the premise. I will say that when it comes to COVID, I don't consider it natural. I consider it uh, lab-made in all likelihood. Not released maliciously, necessarily. You're like, whoops, we weaponized the common cold, as opposed to, we've weaponized the common cold. Um, but that's just a theory. At this point, we will probably won't find that out for another 50 years. So, um, what? you've been doing this podcast for two years. What is? How often do you release it? I do usually a couple episodes a week. And uh, touching on what you just mentioned there, I also agree that there's, there's sort of a sliding scale of stupidity versus malice. And, you know, some people are both. Some people are just evil. They're intentionally creating problems. And then other people are just stupid and they think that regulating our problems away will work. Um, so it's usually a mixture of the two. But, yeah, I, I typically do an episode two or three times a week. Yeah, I, this is a one of the questions that I've really had for a long time. Are they, them, and those evil, or are they misguided? You know, if somebody says, uh, you know, um, there's all these developmentally disabled people in the world. You know what we need? We need um, community based teaching for them to get jobs so that they can live fulfilling lives and maybe places for them to live. And, you know, I mean, that sounds like good hearted stuff. It's misguided because, um, you know, in my opinion, we can probably run that by charity and that, um, you know, whenever you have a situation where um, somebody is forced to pay for something, you're going to have huge amounts of waste. Government programs, will cost somewhere between 1.5 and 15 times what, um, you know, a regular charity type program will cost. And, you know, nobody's there to check it. And if you want to check it, then you're, you're a bad, evil person that doesn't want, you know, developmentally disabled people to live real lives. Like I said, I think it's a mix. I mean, the war in Iraq, you know, there were people who were pushing for a project for a new American century and this idea that if we get rid of Saddam Hussein, the people will democratically elect the leaders that we want them to have and they'll do whatever we want. Where, of course, instead, after we ousted Saddam Hussein and there was a civil war, they ended up electing the Dawa party, which is sympathetic to Iran, obviously not you know, in line with what the people who overthrew Saddam would have wanted. I don't think that they actually really believed that that was going to work. You know, maybe some people who went along with it were like, yeah, sure, this will work. But usually I think the masterminds tend to be the more evil type. And then they tend 
to um, captivate the minds of the gullible, and they're the ones who are just, you know, too too simple-minded to understand what's really going on. So usually you have cult leaders who are nefarious, and then you have a bunch of people who follow along with the cult. And I would say they're more the ones who probably are well-intended but just completely misguided. Yeah, using your example, um, only the most dull and ignorant of uh, people in the government would have uh, assumed that somehow democracy was going to work in Iraq, especially once they found out when Turkey said, hey, there won't be any of this Kurdistan stuff. What made the most sense in Iraq is to cut Iraq up into three pieces for the Kurds, the uh, Ba'athists or the Sunnis, and the Shias, uh, because obviously the Shias were going to be sympathetic to Iran. They're the only country in the world that's Shia, and uh, the Iranian, you know, these people are going to, they like each other. And there's long-running disputes between Shia and Sunni far deeper than Protestant and Catholic ever runs. And the idea that somehow you're going to draw straight lines on a map and everything's going to be fine is fundamentally misguided. And they do this stuff over and over and over again. I mean, we could have told them that locking down the entire economy, you know, first, well, let's weaponize the common cold and then maybe we release, it gets released by accident and then we'll just shut down the world economy for a year and everything will be fine. We won't have to inflate the monetary supply, give advantages to our enemies and, you know, perhaps create World War III as a result. I mean, you know, these are trickle-down effects that are clear and obvious. But these idiots, these vain idiots in the government just continue to do this stuff and we continue to let them. It's stunning. Yeah. Uh, COVID's another example where I believe the people who were pushing for these economic measures that benefited corporations and destroyed small businesses, I don't think that they actually had good intentions where millions of people probably actually believed, okay, these guys are experts, so we're going to follow along with what they say. And in the end, you know, this will turn out better than if we are just left to our own devices. And that's just typically how it goes. Um, but, you know, the war in Afghanistan also, you know, we left there and within five days, the Taliban completely takes over again. There's no way we actually thought that being there for 20 years was going to change the way those people think. But, A lot of Americans really felt that way. So, you know, it's just this constant game of a few elite people weaponizing an idea that they know millions of people will kind of dull-mindedly follow along and believe. Yeah, I, um, you know, when it it comes to Afghanistan, I don't think there's, I, I don't, you know, when it came, people thought that George Bush is like, well, we got to chase this guy down and, you know, as a result, bring down Afghanistan. He was hiding in, uh, you know, the country next door. He wasn't even there for all we know. Um, you know, you're just running on some intelligence information. Guess we're going to have to take down another nation. Um, you know, during the Bush administration, basically the Afghan war wasn't really much um, to speak of. When Obama goes in, he thinks he's going to nation build. And that didn't work either. It just, I mean, you know, so far Afghanistan in the last 150 years has managed to bring three empires to its knees. Um, Really, did we think we were going to be any different? Fascinating stuff. I don't know. Um, What are some of the other topics that you're hitting on on your show? Yeah, so obviously foreign policy is a big thing I talk about a lot. Um, I do get a little bit into 9-11. It's kind of interesting to me. I have found that with every war or event a terrorist attack any sort of event 
Uh, COVID's another one. There's always an intentional official narrative, and then there's an intentional counter-narrative, and they're usually both wrong. The truth is usually a little bit complicated and somewhere in the middle, and the intended effect of creating an intentional uh, counter-narrative is that you can instantly dismiss all criticism of the official narrative as this bogus, crazy, stupid conspiracy theory that someone comes up with. So 9-11, there's some people who don't believe a plane hit the Pentagon or that planes even hit the World Trade Center or whatever. And if you have any questions... I don't mean to, to stop you, but can you give the website real quick for your for people to find your podcast? Yeah, if you just go to YouTube and type in Naturalist Capitalist, uh, you'll find me there and I'm on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts too. Thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it, Reed. Uh, That's Reed Coverdale, naturalist capitalist. Mark Edge, Free Talk Live here at Freedom Fest. I am grabbing interviews all day long, and frankly, it's been exciting and fun. I've got Eric Schuss with me from On Air Platform. Eric, I was skeptical. Uh, to you know, to do this interview from the beginning, but you convinced me that this is a product that may very well be needed by a large amount of people in America right now. So, go ahead and tell me what the on-air platform is. Sure, Mark, I appreciate it. On-air platform is a combination of a hardware light and an application to help people be able to communicate their status, availability, and openness to communication to those around them. So what that means is, is you've got a device, and that device, uh, you're an old radio guy like me, and you're used to having an on-air light to let the world know. The reason that we have on-air lights is to let the world know, and how many people. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll just go ahead and say it. It happened to me yesterday. I almost inter- uh, interrupted Glenn Greenwald in a podcast interview because I, and Glenn Greenwald, one of my personal you know, favorites out there, because he's, you know, because there's no indication of what's going on. That's exactly it. And again, worked in radio. On air light was so fantastic. Everybody knew, you know, that it's you know, don't come in, don't be, you know, make noise. And with the change in the work now, with so many people working from home, working in the office, and th- we're all broadcasting ourselves on Teams, on Zoom all the time. I'm on a team or Zoom call probably three or four hours a day. And for my family to not be able to know when they can come in, when they can interrupt me, was a problem. So I created the on-air platform and the on-air light so I can have one on my desk. So when I'm coming up on a call, it looks at my calendar. The light begins to glow. So I don't do that thing where it's like, okay, I got four minutes to the call. Oh, I got one minute to the call. I'm ADHD. I get squirrel and it's five minutes past. Crap, I'm late for my call. So I can see the light is on the light sitting there on my desk that the call is about to start. That is also synchronized with one above my door. So my wife and daughters know don't come in during that. There's also one synchronized downstairs in the kitchen. So my kids can see it there and not, maybe don't make the noise or go run, bother dad. And then in my wife's office, I can see her status. She can see my status. And we don't do that thing, are you available for lunch all day long? So the concept of on air is communicating through light in a very kind of passive way. When my wife needs to, con- to contact me, she can simply push the button on her with her color 
And now I see her, my light glow. And based on the pattern and that she sent, I know how important that is. So I don't have to break my flow. Because we've done some studies that, I mean, over half the people are, uh, inter- are basically interrupted multiple times every single day. And it takes almost a half hour to get back into the flow, especially if you're trying to do anything creative. So if I can just glance over and see my wife needs me, but it's not that important, that's so much different than her walking in and walking in on my Zoom call asking me a question. So the on-air platform is really used to be able to communicate that concept of your presence your availability. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is great. Now, I can't speak to uh, the you know using this. I haven't used it. I can't say what. Um you know how well it works um, in application life or any of those things. But what I can say is is that I have all of these problems, and this is the first attempt I've ever seen to address these problems. So I do work in a creative world. I'm doing interviews during the day. I've got a kid. Um, you know, and you know all this stuff where eh, you know like their priorities are different than your priorities are, and maybe they want you some help with a Lego or they want to show you the most recent drawing or whatever it is they're doing. I'm not trying to diminish any of that. I think all of that's important. They just, they, you know, if you can communicate that, hey, look, uh, if, if the house is on fire, if this light is on and the house is on fire, that's the only time you can come see daddy. Like the house needs to be on fire. Um, but if the light's off, then come on in and show me the Lego and show me the drawing. Um, uh, you know, I want the visits from my loved ones, but I will only want them at certain times. And it's frustrating. Well, and I think that's a really important thing because it's also the fact of, you know, there's so many mothers working at home and there's nothing, you know, the scariest thing is when you hear a loud noise outside from the kids. The second scariest is when it's quiet. And if you're working at home, to know that your kid, all they have to do is go push a button and to communicate that they need you is so much peace of mind. So this really helps with peace of mind. It helps your productivity, but it also helps your interpersonal uh, relationships. We've all seen the videos on YouTube of someone walking in on a call and the anger and there's someone walking behind them naked. We can get rid of all of those with the on-air light and the on-air platform. Right. I mean, if you're in a confined space and who isn't these day, in cities these days, um, you know, and you've got uh, you're just showing the room and somebody your, your significant other wanders by naked. It's hilarious. I mean, uh, that's funny, but you don't want that happening to you. It's not funny when it happens to somebody else. It's mortifying when it happens to you. OK, so you've got a prototype of the device that's sitting right here. Um, it glows different colors. I'm into all of that. How do you go from good idea and this is a i'm gonna like i'm convinced now this is a good idea eric my question is how do you go from good idea to getting this out there there's a lot of people right now who have what they believe to be good ideas and i'm not advocating for their ideas um what they believe to be good ideas and they're trying to go from where you are you've got you're farther you've got a prototype um from where you've been to where you hope to go how do you do it well luckily my whole career has been in high, running high-tech companies and starting companies. I have a track record of bringing complex uh, hardware and software products to market. So I've done this many, many times. We've gone from basically zero to prototype hardware, software, custom hardware in less than four months. We are, we are ro- going ahead. We have pilots with large companies. Imagine a company that has two or 3,000 home workers that are, they can just send a kit that costs $99 for two lights in the app that's going to increase their productivity by 10 to 25% right out of the gate. 
So the idea is we're going to sell to large companies to be able to then take that product and be able to give it to their employees as a Christmas gift that's going to help their interpersonal relationships or productivity and their uh, ability to communicate. And then, But we're also selling it direct. So we're starting the show in December. We're going to start shipping. You can pre-order it now at www.onairplatform. For $99, you get uh, the two-light kit, and then you can add additional lights for $59. And we're going to be working to you know get these products out to everybody. My ultimate goal is to drive it down so everybody can go to Walmart, buy a two-light kit, and also we're selling through companies. There's also a huge market in medical that we're also starting on uh, for hospitals and doctor's offices to be able to show status of patients in rooms where the doctors and nurses need to go next. We've got military uses uh, for skiffs and things. So, so there's an enormous opportunity, this platform that we're building, and we're looking for partners who want to build software, hardware, custom lights. We want to have companies that want to look for new markets and partner with us. Uh, and uh, we're looking to grow this. I've been running companies my whole life. I love it. And this is the first one that's all me. So I'm very excited about it. So this app um, is going to be, it's got to be robust what you're talking about. It's going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm dizzy thinking about the problems you have integrating the app into this prototype and then getting it to market for $99, which is probably sounds high to people for two lights. But I can tell you from what you're, you're proposing is, is you're losing money for the first year. No, we actually aren't. I'm I'm very good at uh, at sourcing. Again, getting supply chain is my is my you know specialty. So no, we'll be we'll make we'll make a money. We're not making you know a ton, but we're going to continually drive the price down. You know, and every single revision, every single month. Um, you know, and the idea is again that this product should be something that everybody can use. It's easy and will help them every day. Yeah, I'm I'm excited by it, and uh, you know when you're ready for your first round, I want to try it out and see what it's like for my life. Um, so it's again the onairplatform.com. Eric, thank you so much for your time here, and I appreciate it. We are actually doing a WeFunder, so if you go to www.onairplatform, if you think this company is going to grow like I do, you can actually invest as little as $100 and become a part owner in onairplatform.com at wefunder.com, and uh, really looking forward to growing this community. Free Talk Live, Mark Edge here at Freedom Fest. I've run across a former co-host, Heather Mullins, who is now working with Real America's Voice. Heather, what have you been doing since you left Free Talk Live? Uh, just staying on top of things, staying on top of politics. I've, I guess I sort of found my niche, and that's uh, digging into elections, election processes, uh, recounts, voting machines, things of that nature. So it's a hot topic. It is a hot topic, and I have seen the evidence that this is the case, and I'm so excited about what you're doing. What are some of the things that you found out? Well, the idea that election fraud doesn't exist is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it doesn't. Only a mind numbed Miramadon somehow thinks that somebody isn't cheating. We get something so valuable that somebody's not cheating. I mean, just look at how much money gets dumped into elections every year. I think um, in the Mitt Romney and Obama race, right, way back when, they each raised a billion dollars. That money gets spent, it goes places. Then you had in 2020, you had Mark Zuckerberg dump about half a billion dollars into our elections, um, and that went through a nonprofit, uh, nonprofits like the Center for Tech and Civic Life that then cherry-picked which counties got that money. And, and there was a lot of strings attached to that money, I found out, right? So, like, if you go to Wisconsin, for example, 
what they did is they ended up sending this first round of like small checks out to, you know, different big counties. And they were like, this is to help with COVID, right? Oh, it's going to, you know, help add more mass or this or that. And it was just sort of like this little test to see if they could get the money out, distributed it. Um, no questions asked, no strings attached. Then when that happened, they dumped a second round of checks, um, like, tons and tons of money, millions between these five counties, right? And it came with strings. It was sort of like if you you basically have to get everything approved of how you spend that money through these nonprofit organizations. And it essentially created this, this sort of like delegating the powers now from the election officials who are supposed to be running the election now to these nonprofits. Because when they spend that money, if they don't do it in a way that's fit for the nonprofits, they have to pay every penny of that money back. And so it's actually going to cost money to the taxpayer if they go to court. Do you know what I'm saying? And so the, this money that started getting dumped, our elections were getting bought right right out from underneath us. And they funded things like drop boxes that were then used to subsequently cheat and traffic ballots, which we know thanks to the amazing work of Greg and Catherine um, from True the Vote. So that's just the tip of the iceberg, Mark. What organizations were, were uh, giving out these checks and to whom were they giving them? Um, so they were giving them out to the mayors and stuff in the different counties. It was the Center for Tech and Civic Life that that was run by um, Mark Zuckerberg. It's one of his organizations. Um, there's a few other nonprofits you can look them up, but that was the big one that I followed in Wisconsin. And ironically, the person put in charge of that money, right, a guy named David Pluff, uh, used to work as an advisor to Obama. And um, he wrote a book called How to Defeat Donald Trump. And so I wonder if he's biased. Yeah, I mean, you would think. I mean, I, one can only speculate. <laughs> one can only speculate. <laughs> as far as the election, potential election fraud might have gone here, I know that these drop boxes uh, were at, at issue. One of the things that I thought was kind of strange is, is that, you know, the idea is to send out ballots, right? So you, they send out a ballot and it goes to wherever it was that they have for as an address for you. And a lot of Americans move on a great deal of uh, basis. So, you know, if, say, uh, 10 ballots showed up at my house, you'd have to trust me because this is a, an anonymous vote, you'd have to trust me to not fill out these ballots. Just toss them away because I don't know where you know these people are. How many of these have gone out? Because I can tell you this. I moved to uh, the U.S. Marianas two, three years ago, and New Hampshire continues to call me for jury duty, continues to talk to me about voting. I can't vote legally in New Hampshire, but they don't know that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we saw was, like, when you have mass mail-in of ballots, right, the one safety net that they're supposed to do is signature match verifications, which they, we found they did not do in a lot of states. I mean, audits in Maricopa County, Arizona, found that there were absentee mail-in ballots that got mailed in with no signature at all that were ultimately counted. How do you do that? You don't know where that vote came from or how it got there. And we know ballots were illegally trafficked in these drop boxes thanks to uh, cell phone data that put these people at the drop boxes along with corresponding footage and whistleblowers. So um, chain of custody is really important. But again, we did open records requests in states like Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan. And a lot of these counties didn't have the chain of custody. So again, now you have hundreds of thousands of uh, ballots compromised. You don't know where they came from, who sent them in, but they're being counted toward our election. Like this is a, a breach of process and uh, a breach of law in a lot of states and nobody's being prosecuted. That's the biggest problem that I have is that I've documented clearly 
like violations of law and the proper authorities are not investigating. Right. They don't care. Um, they, you know, we've got the result we've got. What are we going to do? Undo it. Like that would be a really interesting thing is what if we found out right now? Let's let's just say as a hypothetical that uh, Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election and Joe Biden's out. How would you even unravel an election at this point? Like, you know, just the way that America has run for 200 and something years, you basically would have to ignore it. So that's what they're doing. They they don't want to be responsible for their actions. They don't want to be responsible for the fact that they didn't make ballots provisional that should have been provisional. There's ballots made provisional all the time. Uh, if you don't follow instructions, why should your ballot be counted? The ballots, too, are one part of the problem, right? The other big one everyone talks about is the voting machines. There's a couple different kinds. There's Dominion, ESNS, there's AccuVote, there's, you know, Smartmatic, I think. But long story short, they're all have their risks and vulnerabilities associated with them. And recently, the federal government's top cybersecurity agency, CISA, actually came out and filed a, a report that says these machines can, in fact, be exploited because there's a federal lawsuit in Georgia called Curling v. Raffensperger. And in it, it's been an open case since 2018, before the 2020 election. A uh, professor at Michigan University, or University of Michigan, whatever it is, Alex Holderman, wrote a 25,000-word report that says... This is how you can hack and exploit these machines and flip votes. That report was sealed by the federal judge and was not allowed to be released to the public. They tried um, petitioning to release a redacted version, and that wasn't allowed to be released to the public until the federal government weighed in and gave their recommendation. They dragged their feet, not wanting to get involved. They didn't want to acknowledge that there was vulnerabilities with the machines. They finally did and released a report a few months ago saying, yes, They can, in fact, be exploited, but we have no evidence that they ever were in 2020. But that said, they didn't do a forensic audit on all the machines. So how would they know? They're trying to downplay it, right, and try to act like it didn't happen. But we know that it can happen, and there's enough probable cause to suggest it may have happened with these voting machines, including in the recent primaries that we had in Georgia. I understand the reason that the towns and cities want to use these machines because it's just a lot easier to count votes and you can get it done a lot more quickly. But it's clearly the trust isn't there. Who in their right mind believes that these machines are 100% secure? Obviously, any computer can be hacked. Again, when you have something as valuable as a presidential election in play, somebody's going to want to do that. I think the trust is low and it's pretty obvious that you can see that they can be hacked. Where can people follow what you're doing, Heather? Because I know you're on this like a bloodhound. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm like a dog and a bone with this. This is not like a a right-left issue. This is an issue with everybody that wants their vote to count, everyone that's on the ballot that wants to run for an office, whether you're Democrat, Libertarian, Republican. Um, If you're on that ballot or you cast a vote, this concerns you. So you can follow me. I'm on all social media, everything from Getter to Truth Social to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Telegram. Um, And my handle is Talk, T-A-L-K, Mullins, M-U-L-L-I-N-S. That's Heather Mullins at Talk Mullins. Thank you so much for your time here, Heather. I appreciate it.
the new fourth edition of Healing Our World, The Compassion of Libertarianism will take your understanding of liberty to a deeper level and has over 1,300 updated references, new cartoons, and a forward by Dr. Ron Paul. With discounts for multiple book purchases, the fourth edition of Healing Our World is a great gift for the liberals, pragmatists, environmentalists, and Christians in your life who think libertarianism is cold-hearted. Get yours today at healing.freetalklive.com and use promo code FTL for a $5 discount. It's Mark Edge here at Freedom Fest, and I've got with me a longtime friend, Jim Babka. Thanks for coming on Free Talk Live. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here with you. So you, uh, I mean, you've been, you did Downsize DC for I can't tell you how long. Must have been two decades. You were also on Harry Brown's uh, campaign. You were his campaign manager, I believe. Is that right? Press secretary, actually, yes. And so you go back a long way in the liberty movement, but it looks like you've changed what you're doing, and you're with the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity. Tell me what's going on. So the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity wants to get across a principle that we call human respect. It's a a natural principle. So the same way that gravity works, right? You drop an object, it falls. In fact, we know exactly how fast it moves. Well, in the same way we know that any time theft or violence is used against a person, their happiness, harmony, and prosperity declines. It's true always. It's consistent. But, Mark, we tend to make some exceptions to this as human beings. We practice this in our normal day-to-day activity. But when we go to vote, we don't vote that way. We seem to forget. Politicians will come along and sell us on the idea that they can increase happiness by using force, which is what the government is at the end of the day. It's coercion. It's violence. And, and so we are arguing that, no, the principle isn't suspended suddenly. Gravity isn't suspended because of an act of Congress, right? It will be the case that once the government uses that power to coerce, once they point guns at people, happiness, harmony, and prosperity will always decline. A lot of people would say that, um, you know, certain, uh, let's call them charitable acts, are so important that we have to use a monopoly on violence in order to get those things to happen. Um, I mean, you know, that's what we've been told is that this is really important. And if we don't do it, we're going to have old people dying of crack uh, habits in the streets uh, straight away. Like it's going to happen the next day. As if that's not happening right now all along the West Coast of uh, the United States. And that somehow the force of government fixes this. Well, first off, I would ask, where does that money come from that pays for all these wonderful programs? Does it come from the Russians? Does it come from the Martians? No, it comes from you and me. But they take a little bit off the top. The federal government collects it, takes some off the top, sends it back to the state. They take a little off the top, and then they implement their programs. And their programs frequently don't work. We are suggesting, though, going one step further... But there's always somebody who's been robbed in that situation. Their ability to, to help a cause that maybe they valued was taken away, and that money was sent off, and it was used, and maybe even used in ways that offended the person from whom it was taken. So in every situation, we will always see the measurable. We'll be able to find a victim whose happiness, harmony, and prosperity declined because the government chose to act. Also, another thing that's uh, really important to point out is is the government is highly inefficient. On average, uh, I found about seven times, uh, you know, a seventh as efficient as, uh, you know, the free market. So when you're trying to solve whatever your given problem is that you're trying to solve and you're going to use government funds to do it, the chances are you're going to pay seven times as much. It could be anywhere from 2 to 15. We don't know exactly. It depends on the, the particular type of graft and corruption that we're dealing with. But that these things, uh, this, this doesn't, it doesn't work. It just costs a heck of a lot more. 
It always does. And, you know, think about the number of things that you're even aware of that are done on a voluntary basis. There's a lot of soup kitchens and homeless shelters and drug programs that exist out there where people are volunteering or working at below market wages because they find their happiness in those activities. One of the interesting things that you find about charity is that the state actually suppresses it. And this comes as a shock to most people. So uh, we're aware, and I'm sure you are, of stories where because the homeless were being fed sandwiches that weren't made in a commercial kitchen, weren't certified properly. There was, I believe this happened down in Florida, where there were police that came along and poured bleach on the sandwiches. That's a true story. Uh, Closer to home for me, a few years ago in Cleveland, there was a church that was attempting to uh, take in the homeless. And they said, well, you will have to give up your designation, your zoning designation to be uh, to be a church, and, and you'll have to do all these other repairs for various safety regulations, other type of regulations we have for housing if you're going to house the homeless in your building. And they ended up not pursuing the mission. So it's true, like our old friend Harry Brown would have said, government breaks both your legs, hands you a pair of crutches, and says, see, without us you wouldn't be able to walk. We are suggesting that if everyone is allowed to pursue their happiness, those sandwiches would have been delivered to the homeless because that gave joy to the giver. And that church would have been able to serve uh, its constituency of the homeless because that brought joy and that was how they worshiped and served their God. Right. And so what you can see is, is that, um, you know, it's a race to the bottom in many cases. So we can see that the homeless problem out west is um, it it's high. It's because the homeless are concentrating out west for whatever programs are being, you know, given out there. Um, you know, people aren't fools. Even homeless people aren't fools. They're not going to just sit in the spot where they became homeless and, uh, you know, fester there. They're going to go where they can get some food. They can get a little more shelter. And um, maybe they can acquire whatever, you know, the mind-altering substances they're looking for. Not to say every homeless person is a drug addict, but not to say that these aren't unrelated issues either. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very difficult problem to solve, and throwing money at it only makes it worse. You know, in California in particular, I'm aware, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but they focused on a housing policy. So their goal is to get some kind of a roof over the head of the homeless. They think that's their problem, is that they don't have a home. Uh, that program has proven to be extremely expensive. In San Francisco, they have tent cities where it costs them 60000 a year to house people in tents. Uh, and per person? Per person. And uh, so clearly no charity would set itself up that way. But they're not dealing with the root causes of the homelessness, and they're not really helping people escape their situation. You know, you would hope that when somebody came into a shelter like this and needed the assistance, that the next step would be to be getting them into a place where they would be able to be sufficient enough that they would get a job and move into the population. But that's not what's happening uh, with the way that the government's handling it. And that's another reason we want people pursuing their happiness. Lots of creative solutions would come to fore. Tons of people would be out there working, experimenting, finding the best ways that work. We already do know some of those things right now from the voluntary solutions that exist out there. Because clearly the government, in the way that it is wasting the money, is getting it wrong. They are diminishing happiness, harmony, and prosperity, both from the people that they've taken this money and wasted. So those people have been harmed that they could have used their money better and they're not actually helping solve the problem. How can people find more about the Foundation for Harmony and Prosperity? Harmonyandprosperity.org is the website. That's harmonyandprosperity.org. That's an A-N-D there? Yes. So um, also, I know that you've just started a, a new podcast. You're starting a new podcast. I want to find out a little bit more about that. You're a longtime friend of the show. I don't mind promoting your work. Thank you very much for that. So it's called Grace Archie with Jim Babka. 
So the archy part, you know, monarchy, anarchy, ar that archy suffix means either rule or government. So it's government by grace. What is grace? Well, most people who are maybe uh, Christian, religious, will recognize that it's the unmerited or extended favor of God. But we have the same ability to extend favor. So, you know, we have the ability to tolerate other people's differences and distinctions. We can forgive and forget. This is going further. This is wanting to understand what is it that's causing the hurt in your life that made you act the way you did? Why are you acting out? Or what is the difficulty you have? How can we help? And in, uh, in, my, in uh, my first episode, we talked specifically about guns. We had a discussion that was way different than the normal left-right divide about regulating guns or how the merits of guns. And I happen to believe in the merits of guns. I'm a concealed carry person myself for more than 15 years. So we didn't just do the normal uh, red-blue debate that goes on in this country. What we did instead was we talked about, hey, what, what motivates these shootings? What makes them happen? Uh, what is hurting? What is the hole inside people? And how can we begin to come up with ways to identify their hurt and be there to help them? Grace is that extending that special favor to others that we don't fully understand, trying to meet them in their need and solve these, these social problems before they become serious and they really affect us in the culture. It probably sounds, to some extent, uh, dichotomous to people. So, for one, you've got the Harmony and Prosperity organization, and you've got uh, you know a guy advocating for concealed carry. But you know, Jesus had interesting dichotomies himself. He said, "You know, sell your cloak and buy a sword." Um, well, I don't know what he meant when he said that, but I, pr I know what a sword is. At the same time, he felt like the w the most important work that his followers could do was to serve the poor. Yes, um, and, and repeatedly talked about, you know, uh, meekness, uh, forgiving, uh, even your enemy, uh, going the extra mile. We have that phrase from a parable that he told or a teaching that he had. The idea, and th this is very much the idea here, is that the way that we solve social problems, we're all self-governors. We're all self-managers. We learn first how to take care of ourselves. Then we learn how to provide and take care of a family and, and raise children who, who have the ability to take care of themselves. But after that... We begin, we have extended family, and we have our community. We have the ability to reach out to the people we touch. And part of the problem is that, we, that the state pretends instead that it is God and that it can actually solve all these problems for us. And then that makes us uh, more, less responsible. We see a problem, we walk by and say, isn't there a government program for that? And so what we're suggesting is the best way that we can escape this tyranny is if we have this spiritual sense, this core to us, that gives us the ability, the grace, to go in and meet the needs of others and help them uh, rise above whatever the difficulty or circumstances they're, they're dealing with. Tell me how people can find your podcast. Like, where is it? Where can they download it? Where can they get them on the RSS feed? All that good stuff. So they can look up Jim Babka on YouTube. Jim, B-A-B-K-A, on YouTube. And uh, right now, that's where we're at. We will be next month. This is July. I'm sitting here talking to you. Uh, by next month, we will be on all the uh, major podcasting platforms.